Let's now read Titus 3, verses 8 to 15. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Verse 8, he has this common uh, saying, this is a trustworthy statement. He reiterates that whatever he's saying is true. True and trustworthy. Everybody should have confidence in what he's saying. This is just one of the many indications throughout the epistles of Paul, and not only Paul, but others, where they are giving self-awareness or asserting self-awareness of their own trustworthiness and their own inspiration by the Holy Spirit. It's not true. Some people think that when Paul wrote Titus and when Paul wrote his other letters, Paul did not know and Paul did not believe that he was writing Scripture. That's not true. He did know and he did believe that he was writing Scripture. One evidence of that is when he says, this is a trustworthy statement. When he asserts it, he is asserting the fact that he knows what he's saying is the truth of God. We have several clear examples of this self-awareness in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. It performs work, God's work in them who believe because they know it's God's message and because it was God's message, right. not man's message, not at all. Now, in verse 8, he continues, Titus 3, 8, And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Those who are commissioned to preach the word should preach it Confidently, They should preach the truth of God confidently. They shouldn't be doing it sheepishly. They shouldn't be doing it um, uh, mealy-mouthed, that is, equivocating here and there. They shouldn't be saying, well, you can view it this way or well, you can view it that way. No, they need to know what the Bible says and then present it with confidence, with full conviction. And then when that happens, we should not misinterpret those preachers and teachers who are teaching authoritatively from the Bible as though they are arrogant, as though they are narrow-minded and intolerant. That's not the biblical definition of arrogance. The biblical definition of arrogance is not the pastor who knows what the Bible says and then authoritatively tells the people of God what the Bible says and says, this is the Word of God, let's stand on it. That's not arrogance. That is full conviction. That is confidence. This is what Titus was called to do. Titus 2.15, he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
This is the way it should be. The man of God who's commissioned, appointed by God and called by God to preach, he needs to study to such an extent that he has conviction on what the Bible says, on whatever passage he's preaching, whatever topic he's addressing, whatever he says. It should not come from him and his own ideas, but from the Bible that he knows confidently speaks to the subject at hand. And why? Verse 8, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. So that the believers can be careful to engage in good deeds. How is a believer going to practice good deeds if he doesn't know what a good deed is? Because the preacher did not tell him authoritatively and confidently what it is to practice good deeds and what it is to practice evil deeds. He cannot know and do so unless he is taught from the Bible, whether he reads it himself or if he's taught it from the pastor. He needs to know what it is so that the believers can practice good deeds. Now, we know he has emphasized good deeds throughout this letter. He's done this because before Christ and even after faith in Christ, there's still a lot of evil in us. And this is what needs to be overcome. We need to be aware of it, know what evil is, but also know what good is. The Bible is always contrasting the difference between good and evil, light and darkness, kingdom of God and kingdom of Satan. The Bible is doing it all the time. We have to be reminded of it so we know what's good and pursue the good with confidence and wholeheartedly. These things are good and profitable for men. If we don't do this, then it's evil and unprofitable for men. That's the implication. That means that if we are not studying the Bible and not speaking of the Bible with confidence to encourage believers to practice good deeds, we're not doing good and we're not doing that which is profitable for men. When, when churches do not preach and teach this way, then they end up being churches that are full of all kinds of contention, all kinds of division, all kinds of gossip and slander. People in the church are practicing all kinds of sexual sins, and everybody says, oh, well, that nobody's perfect, and they just let it go. That cannot happen. That cannot happen. Because then it's evil and it's unprofitable. Those people are still lost. But the saved, the true believers, practice good deeds. As we just said, there's always a contrast in Scripture. Now the contrast, verses 9 to 11. The way we should be is verse 8. The way we should not be is 9 to 11. But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. There are false teachers who pick up the Bible and then they take a passage here or there, they rest it out of context, and then they say, this is what the Bible says on this or that. This is what causes controversies and in in their case, genealogies. It's not just the Jewish genealogies, which is a problem, that the Jewish false teachers would take the genealogies of the Bible and find things in the genealogies that aren't there and dispute about what the true meaning of the genealogies are. But it's also in other religions. There are genealogies in terms of the, uh, the gods, which god begat which god, if they are pagans. And then there's also genealogies and strife, for example, between the two major branches of Islam. 
the, the Sunnis and the, and the Shiites, they fight each other because of genealogy. Who is the proper successor of, the, of their false prophet, Muhammad? Right? So there's disputes. People get into fights about things that they shouldn't be getting into fights about. And they have strife and disputes here, dis, strife and disputes about the law. No, the law says this. No, it doesn't say that. The, meaning the law of Moses. The law expects us of, to do this or that. No, 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 it doesn't expect this or that. What was the purpose of the law of Moses? To save us from our sins, they say. No, 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 it's not for that. So they bring up these objections or the wrong purposes of the law, wrong meaning of the law of Moses, whether it's the whole law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, or whether it's uh, certain parts of the law of Moses, or whether it's the Ten Commandments. They get into disputes and say, this is right or that's right, and it causes friction and conflict without having a proper understanding. Without understanding what is true and what is false. They speak of, the, of things confidently, but they don't know what they're talking about. That's the problem. For they are unprofitable and worthless. In verse Titus 1.16, he said, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The people who instigate these kinds of controversies and disputes, he says, they produce things that are unprofitable and worthless. We get bogged down into things that we should not be talking about and have no proper basis and necessities in the Christian church. Therefore, what should we do when we encounter those kinds of men? Verses 10 and 11. Reject the factious man after a first and second warning. Reject him. That means don't believe him. Don't follow him. Have nothing to do with him. Reject a factious man, a divisive man. Don't be with him. After a first and second warning. After you have warned him, you have said what you need to say once and then twice, and he still won't listen, then reject him. Walk away from him. Shake the dust off your feet. Do, do that and tell him, your blood is on your own head. Amen. I am clean. Acts 18.6 When they do those things, we have to walk away from them and make them realize that they deserve the judgment of God for rejecting what the Bible clearly teaches. These men don't have the truth. It says in verse 11, Knowing that such a man is perverted. He is a spiritual pervert. One who is causing division on, and instigating division and separation and quarrels and conflicts when there is no basis. Usually these people are instigators. These people are the typical instigators of conflicts in churches. It's not the true teacher who's the instigator. It is these people who are the instigators. The true teachers are, are explaining the Bible and expecting the Bible to be obeyed. And then somebody speaks up. Somebody pipes up and says, no, 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 uh, no. Let me take you aside. Let me show you the better way. That's what they do. They are the instigators. And because of that, they are perverted. They're warped and twisted in their own mind. And they will not listen. And just in case we didn't know that they were sinning, he says they are sinning. Right. Why? Because some people like to think 
that these people are sincere and authentic and genuine. They have good motives, you see. They have good motives, so we shouldn't reject them. We should be tolerant towards them. Yes, we just spent one hour or two hours in the first and second warning, but they expect us to be talking to them more and more and spend 10 hours or 20 hours or 100 hours or 1,000 hours. We should not have a limit. God's love is unconditional, they say, so we should not have a limit. Spend as much time as we need to spend, even if it means we lose sleep. We're not with our wife and family. We don't go to work. We spend time with them until they see the truth. No. Because they are sinning and they are perverted people. If they won't listen after one hour, they won't sit quietly long enough for one hour to see what the Bible says and to let it sink into their mind. They won't do that in one hour or two hours, first and second warning. However, I'm just using a, 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 a standard modern time, one hour or two hours according to the clock. But if they don't have any desire to sit quietly and listen and to contemplate what the Bible actually says, but they've got a ready answer for everything and they object, these people are sinning. They don't have good motives. They're not good people. They're not good at heart. No, they are sinning. And it's a matter of salvation. That's another problem we face. When we encounter false teachers and we're trying to convince them, sometimes we think, well, they just have a different way of looking at it. I'm going to heaven, they're going to heaven, and we just, whatever. They can believe what they want to believe. No. We have to tell them that they are self-condemned. There's condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but for these people who are factious, there is condemnation. It's a matter of life and death. Notice here, too, that these people who are perverted and sinning, being self-condemned, in this passage, they're not denying the Bible. They're not atheists. They're not saying there's no God. They are not deniers of the Trinity. They're not deniers of the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ. They would be these same things based on other passages. But in this passage, what is the evidence that these people are perverted, sinning, and self-condemned? The sins of verses 9 and 10. The sins of verses 9 and 10. Manifested in various other ways throughout this letter of Titus. These people are lost people, condemned people. It's serious business. We cannot speak of this lightly. When people are divisive in these ways, contrary to the Bible, they are self-condemned. Now 12 to 15. Some closing remarks of the Apostle Paul. The gist of these closing remarks is that he is reminding them to love the brethren. Reminding them to practice hospitality. Reminding them to see people in need in the brotherhood, in the church, and to love them and care for them the way that they should. Verse 12 says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. He wants to see his beloved Titus there with him to fellowship and to know what's been going on, to pray for each other, to talk about the future, to encourage each other in the things of God. He wants all of these men to do the same with him. This is what should happen when, when we have true love for one another. We want to be with each other to talk about the things of God, right. to be refreshed and rejuvenated in the things of God. That's what he's wanting. 
Now the help in 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Help these two men because they are faithful men. This is the assumption. We do know of Apollos from Acts 18, 18, 24 to 28. And these two men are faithful, trustworthy men, ministers of the gospel. So they deserve help. Diligently help. Don't do it uh, begrudgingly. Don't do it with griping and complaining. Do it diligently. This is the attitude of helping one another that should be in the church. So that nothing is lacking for them. Listen, if they are on their journey, going from place to place, preaching the gospel, if they're going and doing that, make sure that they are well equipped. Make sure that they have enough to eat, enough to wear, whatever means they need to travel, whatever they need for their family, whatever you know is going on in their life. Just make sure that that's happening, that nothing is lacking for them. 14. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. He continues, this is love your brother or love your neighbor as yourself. This is how we show that we love God by loving our neighbors. And we manifest, we manifest or display good deeds when we meet pressing needs. Yes, it's good to practice good deeds, but good deeds have a priority. There are the pressing good deeds and the the ones that can be handled later. The pressing ones on the front on the front end, the front burner, those have to be handled first. This is similar to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we have that uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. The pressing need at that moment was the man who was left on the road, beaten up and robbed. That's the pressing need. You see the pressing need, especially when it's your own brother, the brother in the church. Help him. Amen. You know what he's experiencing, so go help him and do, do so Diligently, that they may not be unfruitful. Producing fruit. Why is producing fruit mentioned like this? Why, is good de- why are good deeds mentioned? One of the major reasons is to give us a clear distinction between who is a believer and who is not a believer. Right. To know who is in the faith and who is not in the faith. It does glorify God. Uh, let your lights shine in such a way that, that men may see your good works and glorify your Father, glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, uh, 16. So that is true. It glorifies God. And that should be the reason we do so. But right now, experientially, how does it benefit us? Well, we can know from the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 26. We can know if we are in the faith or not in the faith. And we can know that our brother... Uh, literal brother, natural brother, or father, mother, or child, whether he's in the faith or not, based on what the Bible says, this is the way a Christian lives, and this is the way the the non-Christian lives. It's there so that we can know who we are and know who others are, so we can exhort them, so we can preach the gospel to them, or if they are believers, to encourage them in the faith. This is why we um, need to be fruitful. And we need to practice good deeds. And finally, verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This focus on grace and love is here emphasized within the church. We read earlier Galatians 6.10. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. 
When we manifest righteousness and good deeds, it should first and primarily be for those who are in the church and then outside the church. This is why his greetings are like this. Whether they are his salutations at the beginning or his uh, parting farewell greetings here at the end of a letter. He's always focused on the church. The church, the church. Why? Because God's love is for the church. He loves the church. That's why he sent Jesus to die for his church. And in the same way, we should be loving the church. Which in verse 15, well in this last section, 12 to 15, how is it possible... If this is the way it's supposed to be, for any of us to sit alone, to not find a local church, to not fellowship and worship together, it should not be that way at all. Anybody who separates himself like that does not know what he's doing, or he is blind to the things of God. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Proverbs 18.1. We cannot be separate like this. And even Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see, as you see the day drawing near. Let's not use the excuse, well, I can't find a church. I can't find a good church. Well, let me say, once you find a good church that you think is good initially, you're going to spoil it the moment you attend. You will spoil it the moment you attend. Because all of us have sins we need to overcome, but to the extent that the people are sincerely trying to be faithful to the Bible, then be a part of that church. Be a part of that church, no matter what the other circumstances are. And then seek for its betterment. Seek to help it out. Pray for it. Pray for the people of the church, especially the pastor of the church. And pray that others come who are like-minded and who want to be built up in the faith. That's the kind of love and grace that we should be experiencing and showing toward one another in the local church. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.